Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Right, well, I invite you to get your Bibles out to Book of Revelation, chapter 16. We'll look at verses 12 through 16. As you can see, we're jumping around quite a bit in the book of Revelation for this Advent series. And uh, hopefully uh, some of that will make sense uh, just on the way that we read and look at the book of Revelation and how you're able to to, to look at certain uh, vignettes, certain windows into what God is doing and how they're all kind of telling the same story uh, in the various angles uh, as you read through the book of Revelation. But uh, we'll, we'll look at this morning, Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through uh, 16 is what we'll read. This is Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. (laughs) For they are demonic spirits performing signs who... Go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Now, if that isn't an Advent text, then I don't know what, what one is, right? I mean, can't you just, doesn't that just scream Christmas and Advent to you? No? Okay, maybe it is just me. All right, I'm, but I'm only partly kidding about that being an Advent text. Um, traditionally, right, Christmas Day is the day that we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second member of the Trinity puts on flesh, is born as a baby through natural means into this world to live the righteous life we should have lived, die the death we deserve on the cross, resurrect from the grave so that all of every one of us, uh, repenting of our sins, turning from them and looking to Jesus might be saved. And we celebrate the incarnation on Christmas Day. So that is a specific day of celebration for the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, but re- and, and really, if we're honest, every Sunday at some level is that where we celebrate that Jesus came to earth and it's a vital part of the, of the uh, gospel narrative of creation, fall, redemption, that Jesus would come to rescue us. It's a part really of every Sunday. But Advent is more specifically this season, more of a John the Baptist type. John the Baptist, that's kind of, this is the season of Advent. And what was John the Baptist's um, role? He was preparing the way for the Lord. He was saying, get ready. He, he who is 
whose sandals I'm not even worthy to tie is on his way. Prepare yourself. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Get ready. Turn from your sin. Repent. Look to God. The, the Savior is coming. And so Advent is more along those lines of expectation, of preparing, of getting ready because the Savior is on his way. And so there's this heightened expectation. That's why it's four weeks leading up to Christmas, right? Because it's supposed to kind of ramp up and ramp up and ramp up our expectation, like the piling up of gifts under the tree. You, you start, you know, first there's just a couple underneath there. Maybe you do it differently than we do. I don't know. This is the way we do it at our house. It starts out just a couple and the kids are all excited. Then they show up and the next day there's maybe a few more they get out there. And by the time it's done, there's way too many underneath there. But this is the way that it goes. And there's this building. Ex no, Logan, that's not the way it goes. There's this building expectation of, of the arrival of the Savior. And so this Advent, we've been looking at the anticipation of the coming of Jesus by picking around through the book of, of Revelation. And we are trying to, in this series, since we are in this Advent season, to show how much the book of Revelation actually has in common with the theme of Advent. It is a book of expectant hope. It's supposed to be a book of expectant hope that the Christian who is suffering, who is in trial, who is in tribulation, who is in difficulty, might be stirred up to have perseverance and hope and trust in the coming, the advent, the second advent of their Savior. And so this is a book of expectant hope. It's strengthening the people of God to persevere through all the various trials of life because they are aware that of, the, of the real battle that is going on and who ultimately is in charge of the battle and will win at the final day. So Advent in the church calendar, as I've said, it's meant to heighten in us, heighten in God's people, an eager longing and hopeful expectation. And I know I'm not ignorant of this reality that the book of Revelation is far more often used as a book of scare tactics or wild speculation, uh, kind of walking through with a, with a world newspaper here in the book of Revelation and trying to line it all up so that we can somehow put all these puzzle pieces together to figure it all out with lots of big, broad charts. We do have a really nice TV going here, but we haven't put a single chart up of how to make the storyline. We haven't done any of that. And I know that's the way the book of Revelation is often used, but if you could just give me the benefit of the doubt, uh, there is... We'd like to walk us through a, a bit of a different perspective than is common around here, at least on the book of Revelation. And this will all culminate next week when we discuss the marriage supper of the Lamb. That'll be the final. Jim alluded to it there in Revelation 22. It's actually Revelation 19, the end, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we're, we're going somewhere of this expectation of Jesus showing up. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the new heavens and the new earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in some of his Advent Reflections. He says that the Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is, a season of waiting for the last Advent, for the time when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Really, all of our life is in some sense this Advent season 
the Christian, those who have been saved by Jesus, brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light, become, been made new, our new people, we now live in expectant hope for this return of our Savior. And one of the truths that I want you to be convinced of is that this book, the Bible, is telling one grand story. It isn't a bunch of choppy different stories. It's often thought of or characterized as we have the Old Testament grumpy God part. That's kind of, he's dangerous. You don't want to, want to watch out for him. We don't talk about him too much. And then there's like the, the poetry and the pretty parts of the Psalms and, and the wisdom of Proverbs. And then we get into um, the, the, the gospel part where Jesus shows up and that's kind of... Uh, uh, it's kind of washed over as just kind of a bunch of really nice sayings by a really nice guy. And then we get into the, the um, epistles, which are instructive part. So we have the, the Old Old Test, the weird Old Testament part. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and it's the really weird, really, really weird part. And that's kind of a whole different thing. And we chop it up. But this really, this book is telling one grand narrative. And Jim alluded to it last week when he talked, when he brought up the, the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15, right? That the first announcement of the gospel, of that the seed of the woman, that the, he will be bruised in the heel by the serpent, but he himself will bruise him in the head. He'll give him a death wound. That that storyline goes all the way through scripture and culminates here in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is intimately tied to all the rest that is going on. This is telling one story. So just to, if you have your Bible out, I mean, just to do a quick, it, because this book can be so difficult uh, for people to, to get through and to understand. There is a bit of a, there, there, are, there are lots of ways, I'll say this. There are lots of ways to divide up the book of Revelation. And you can get some commentaries out, and everyone has kind of their take of it's these seven sections or maybe these 14 sections, or they've got all these different ways that they arrange it. But there really is, a, 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 I mean, there's some pretty clear, this is how it's laid out. We have at the start here this introduction, right, of chapter 1, where we see the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have this first blessed, there's seven blessed statements in the book of Revelation. One of them is our text for this morning. But he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So there's this understanding, there's this call to the, the, the people of God to hear and to keep what's written in the book of Revelation. Okay, so this is why I say it's not meant for wild speculation. It's actually a practical book for us to hear and to keep. There's something in here for us to hear about and then to keep. And for the time is near. It's calling for endurance and faith in the midst of what God is doing. We have this, and then that's the introduction there in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 are these seven letters. We haven't discussed them this morning or this series. We don't have time to get into them. They're all really beneficial to read. Uh, People talk about this being different church ages. I don't agree with that. I think there's just, these are the church, these, we all embody various elements of these seven churches. There is instruction for us in all of these seven churches. Then we get into verse, chapters four and five, the throne room scene, which we sang the He is Worthy song this morning, which is this peek into God on his throne. The lamb at the center, the one who is able to open all the seals. And then we go into these interesting cycles. Then it gets into the kind of fun stuff 
of the seven seals, the seven trumpets. And then like Jim spoke on last week, the greater battle that's going on kind of behind the scenes. And then the bowls of wrath going on. And so all of those scenes are just are really telling the same basic story. The basic story is not hard to get. There are bad guys. <laughs> Satan and his world and his world system is they 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 are going down. They they are destroying the world. They are trying to take the world with them. They are bringing destruction. And then there is a good guy, not good guys. There are bad guy. There's a bad guy in a bad world system. And there's a good guy. He's the Lamb on the throne. Four and five. Jesus, and he has a people. He has a people, the 144,000, also a multitude so great you can't even number. So you got to kind of put those two together. It's everyone he knows exactly who it should be. You can number it to 144,000, but it's also a group so big you can't number it. And that's, that's part of this apocalyptic language. So that isn't, how can it be 144,000 and more than you can number? He's talking about everyone who's supposed to be there will be there, and it's so vast you can't even imagine how big it is. That this, this good guy has his people. And though they, this, though they are his people, they will walk through hard times. Tribulation is, while we live in this world, tribulation is what is going to happen to the king's people at some level. They will not escape hard times. They will not escape the world system and its bad effects. But... Through all of the seals, the trumpets, the, the deeper battle, the bowls of wrath, at the end of those moments, there is a great final battle where the king then does return. Okay? So this is how you kind of bring all of these things together. There's a bad guy in a world system. And is that world system a world system that once did exist? Is it one that exists now? Is it one that will exist in the future? And the answer to that is D, all of the above. It's a bad world system that did exist. It is existing right now. It will exist until our king returns. And so there isn't some, it's, this is a very present book as well. So there's a, a coming final judgment with the marriage supper of the lamb and the great last battle, which I said we'll get into next week. So we don't have time to get much deeper, but I just, that was my <laughs> four minutes flying through kind of, here's a way to structure and to think about the book of Revelation, so that you can read it, know your role in it. As hope, if, if you are one who has turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, you're a part of this 144,000, the multitude too great to number from among all the nations that are his people. That though suffering and trial may come, the, the, at the end of the day, he will return and all will be made right. That's the hope that comes from the book of Revelation. And so then these Interesting scenes. They are sets of pictures of the events that will end, and they're all taken through several different lenses. It's almost like um, when you go, when you're watching a football game and you get a, a camera angle like this, and you say, Oh, this is what's happening. And then you go back and they, they, view the, they view the event from this angle and say, oh, this is what's happening. And then they go and they have the different camera view, the one that I really like, where they focus in like an iPhone on just the guy's head and all the rest of it's blurred out. I love that football shot. It's the best football shot that there is. And, and all these different camera angles that are really just showing the same play. This is, this is the story of history. The enemy, the devil, the dragon, and all of his emissaries and all of his work against the, the, uh, the king 
against the boy who is the seed of the woman who is, who, is, who is going to return. There's all this battle against him that will one day culminate in final victory. So that's, so that's, that's, that's the big picture. And this term advent of coming, we've been looking then in the book of Revelation at the occurrences of Jesus stating that his coming is to be soon. He opens it in the book of, uh, in, the, in the start of the book, we read Revelation 1.6. Jim covered it with his coming judgment there in Revelation 14.7. And this week we're looking at just this parenthetical statement. Yes, that was all introduction, I apologize. We're looking at this parenthetical statement in verse 15, right? Jesus giving this vision, John viewing it, and then he speaks he speaks to his listener, Jesus. It's, it's an interesting, I mean, if you have the ESV, you can see they put, they bracket this in, in parentheses. Jesus speaks and he says, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. It's like inside information. While all this stuff's going on, the world's falling apart. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may go about not naked and be seen and exposed. So he, Jesus here is revealing something incredible about his coming and that we ought to be aware of this morning, that he is going to come like a thief. Now it comes at the end of this section of the bowls of wrath. And during the, the sixth bowl, we find this text. It's a parenthetical statement, as I've said. But you look at verse 14. For they are, the, this is, there's these figures, right? The dragon and all of his bad dudes. The dragon, the mouth of the beast, the mouth of, mouth of the false prophet. Three unclean spirits come out like frogs. They're the demonic spirits performing signs. They're, they're the world system going on. And look how successful they are. They go abroad. They go out into the world to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Why would these dark forces, these, these evil figures, why would they assemble to fight against the Lord Almighty? The gathering of these kings of the nation is because they are convinced of the opportunity of this moment. You don't gather to a battle you think you're going to lose. The world and its system goes on and continues on and is so self-deceived, it thinks it's winning and it offers to anyone who will join it, we are winning, we are going to assemble together and we are going to defeat the king. This world system believes itself in the right and in the power against the almighty God. They have been warring against God and his people and they are thinking that it is now their chance to finish the job. The big idea is that God's people, in contrast to the, the wicked here, God's people live in eager expectation for Jesus' return, knowing that one day, while all will seem to be going well for his enemies, all of a the sudden, they won't. All, all will seem to be going well for his enemies until all of a sudden, they won't. That's the whole, that's when he's talking about coming like a thief in the night, this is what he is speaking about. So three things I want us to notice. The first is that the world, its pleasures, and its successes will increase and seem safe and sure until all of a sudden they won't. 
The world, I mean, if you look around at our culture, I don't have to sell this point very hard, but the world is going to tell you all and sell you all sorts of assurances, all sorts of sure things, and, and it will seem to the world as though this is going great. Rebellion against God getting better and better and better. We've got it all figured out. We know better than some ancient book, than some ancient religion. And it will increase and prosper and seem safe and secure until all of a sudden it won't. This is the context of the, that the early church was dealing with. It's the reality of the church throughout its history and it's a reality that continues today. The world and its ways seem to prosper and increase. I mean, you can read the Psalms, and Psalmos will talk about this. Why do the wicked prosper? The Job will complain about this, right? And he'll say, the wicked raise their kids, everything goes well, and they go to Sheol happy, and yet the righteous suffer. What's going on? This, this world system goes on and seems to prosper and increase, and, and it despises righteousness and holiness and gets away with it. It's the progressive accusation against much of Christianity. You've maybe heard this statement, to get on the right side of history. You heard that statement? You've got to get on the right side of history. Well, that has an assumption that the world is going somewhere great and that someday we'll get to a place where we'll look back and I can't believe we ever thought that way. That's just, that's so backwards. That's so terrible. We've got to get on the right side of history. That's an assumption that the world in its pursuits is going to get better and better and better. And as we plunge into, I won't spend much time on this, but just mention it. As we plunge into confusion over what marriage is, our, 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 our country uh, at this point is more confused than ever about what marriage even is. As we become more confused over what marriage is, what proper human sexuality is, and even what gender is, as we become more and more confused, we're holding to a Christian worldview goes from at one point, the normal and reasonable worldview to will permit it to despised and rejected and, and dis, to discourage and then to even despised. And this is to say nothing of the theological issues that Christianity holds to. The world, the enemy, the dragon and his crew will, will go on and seem to prosper and get better and better, gathering themselves against God himself, thinking they've got it made until all of a sudden they won't. So why is John, why is Jesus telling us through the John? We won't be surprised by this. So you won't be surprised by this. How in the world could these things happen? How in the world could people be so confused? How can the world go in this direction? It's not a surprise. It is not a surprise. The second thing that we want to notice is that the, this concealed moment of Christ's return is not a shortcoming on Jesus' part. It is a moment for the enemy to really show himself. It's almost, it's not a bug, it's a feature. That this, this hiddenness is revealing the hearts of, of his enemies. That they really believe they are getting away with it. We read that Second Peter passage that they're going on. He's delayed. Let's just go ahead and, and, and run off into our own uh, perversity and sinfulness. Because he's not coming, he hasn't come yet. And it reveals, it's a, it's a, it's a revealing of those who are his enemies. Um, if we look quickly at the passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, we don't hardly have time. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are several passages in our New Testament that speak with this language of the thief coming, but 
Uh, this is following kind of the famous passage that um, talk about the catching away of God's people to Jesus, and so they will forever be with him. Um, but going on down from that, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, they're, they're, they're convinced of their own security, of their own, they're satisfied with themselves. There's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. What's that talking about? I mean, how many of you have been around a pregnant lady who like, starts going to labor? And she's like, I can't do this. I can't do this, right? What's the answer? Uh, <laughs> There's no other choice. You, this is what's happening. I can't. It's too late. This is what's going on. That's what, John, that's what uh, Paul is writing about here. He's like, it'll come upon them, and they'll be like, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't mean to. Yeah, it's, well, it's too late. This is, this is what's happening. So then, but you are not, verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, means living when he returns or dead when he returns, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So what's absolutely clear is that Christ is going to return. There's going to be a final reckoning, and that is where Paul goes in his thinking. You see there that the world will be satisfied and feeling peaceful and secure when suddenly the whole world will upend on them. Thirdly, Jesus then calls his people to make sure they are clothed and ready. Because ultimately, no matter how safe and secure the world may feel, and you, you almost have, no matter how um, allured we are by the securities and the peacefulness that the world offers us, it does not really exist. <laughs> the day is coming Jesus calls for us to, to, to wake up, to see the world for what it is, to see the world and its system, the dragon and all of his crew, to see them for who they are, that we might spurn those, his, his ways and be clothed and ready for him. Ultimately, the evil, the enemy will not prevail. It's like uh, the Laodiceans in the letters of the churches, the end of chapter 3. They're the Laodicean church. They're the lukewarm ones. They're real famous because that's where Jesus pukes. You know, he says, he says, you're lukewarm, you're either hot or cold, and I spew you out of my mouth. And this, that church is famous. They're called, though, to clothe themselves, to repent, and to put on, to dress themselves. G, uh, uh, Jim referenced the passage in Revelation chapter 7, right, of the 144,000 who have clothed themselves with Christ's white righteousness and washed their garments with the white with the blood of the Lamb. So we are to stay dressed for action. Jesus says that in Luke chapter 12 because he is coming. You must be ready. Stay dressed for action. So it produces an obvious question. Dressed with what? Okay, so the world system is going to go on. Think it's doing great until all of a sudden it doesn't anymore. 
the concealed moment. It's not a bug. It's a feature. It's, it's revealing those who are Christ and those who are not his. So he calls us to stay clothed and ready. Clothed and ready with what? Put on, first and foremost, the righteousness of Christ. What are we to be dressed with? The righteousness of Christ. I already referenced the Revelation 7, 14 passage where they've washed the robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. If all you have to wear before the throne of Christ's judgment is your own deeds, you will be exposed, your sinfulness will be exposed, and you will be condemned. If all you have is your own righteousness, the scripture is clear, which you have none of, when Christ returns, it will not be a good day. You need, we all need, because God's in his holiness, because God in his holiness demands our holiness, perfection, a holiness that is not naturally found in humanity. What we need is an alien righteousness. I don't mean from Mars. I mean something outside of ourselves, an alien righteousness, something that is not native to us, but we need this alien righteousness. And this is what Jesus provides and clothes his people with through faith in him and in his work. We are to long for Christ's return as those clothed with his righteousness. What is our plea before him? Nothing that I have done, uh, empty uh, empty hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. That hymn writer says, Naked come I thee for dress, uh, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, lest I die. Is this whole hymn talking about this need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Stay ready, dressed for action by putting on the righteousness of Christ, by also throwing off the works of darkness. It, is, it will not do to simply think, in some syncretistic way. I'm going to put on the righteousness of Christ and continue to embrace the world system in its ways and persist in my pride, persist in my selfishness, persist in my sinfulness, persist in my rebellion, but keeping the righteousness of Christ at the same time. That is not truly coming to faith in Christ. He, it is being made new. And so if you are truly made new, you've put on the righteousness of Christ you then throw off the works of darkness. Romans chapter uh, 13, verses 11 through 14 says this, Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We cannot fall for the worldly lie that it does not matter what you do. It does. And as long as we long for his return, we must seek to rid ourselves of all that displeases and dishonors him. And it means living then with grace-fueled, energy, ready and eager, repentance for when we fall as well. And lastly, not only must we drip, put on the righteousness of Christ, throw off the works of darkness, we must do so with all perseverance and faith. He is returning. So what Advent is this expectation for, right? He is returning to finally and fully restore all things. He tells us this so that through the trials of life, 
through the difficult things that happen to us and through the suffering of living in and watching a rebellious world spurn him and hate him and us as well, that we might, he tells us this, so that we might not lose heart and lose hope. The victory is his. He will gather his people to himself. He has defeated the dragon and his ways and one day will execute final justice. Why do we highlight the season of Advent? Because as Bonhoeffer said, our lives are a season of Advent in longing and expectation for our Savior to return. And it has huge applications for us in, in countless ways. Because we do not know the day or the hour. All of our life ought to be lived quorum Deo. is a Latin term for before the face of God. All of our life ought to be lived before the face of God, quorum Deo. And may we seek to honor Him in all that we do, clothing ourselves in His beauty, rejecting the alluring lies of this world, trusting Him and persevering through every circumstance and praying all the while, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, do ask that you would give us eyes to see, give us uh, hearts captured by this incredible promise of yours. God, may, may it encourage us as we look around at the world, as we, as we struggle with, the, with sin in our own lives, being sinned against by those around us, while we look at a broken world where people die when, when, when we think they're too young, when, when horrible things happen and go on, and when we are discouraged by various events, God, and, and, and belittled and put down, and whatever it may be, the activities, the events, the sorrows of our life, that ultimately, though the world and its system may think that it's going on, we know that our Savior is not slow as some count slowness, that a thousand years are as a day with you and a day is a thousand years. You're delaying that all might come to repentance and at just the right time, salvation will come. So we long, we look for, we hope in, and we trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.